In this episode, we discuss the world of sleep medicine with Dr. Mike Farquhar, who is a consultant in sleep medicine at Evelina London Children's Hospital. He is trained in general paediatrics, respiratory paediatrics and sleep medicine at Glasgow, Nottingham, Sydney and London, and did his initial training in Edinburgh. doctor in sleep medicine and that's not something we hear about that often it's certainly not something I believe we get trained in at medical school so could you tell us how you managed to actually get into that sort of speciality? Uh, being uh, thrown uh, which is a Scots word which some of your listeners may well know so thrown basically means stubbornly obstinate uh, perversely obstinate um, I just knowing what I wanted to do and uh, keeping at it no matter what um, it is, as you say, a relatively unusual specialty. One of the big problems uh, with sleep uh, as a medical specialty is you spend a third of your lives asleep and you guys um, still, despite everything we've done to try and improve the amount of teaching about sleep in medical school curriculum, probably get about an hour on average in five years of teaching about sleep. Um, and I'm slightly biased, but I think sleep underpins every aspect of your physical health uh, and well-being, your mental health and well-being. Um, and I think we probably should be spending a lot more time talking with medical students and doctors in training and other healthcare professionals about how to think better about sleep. Um, you asked how I got into sleep medicine. Uh, so uh, as with lots of these things about why people become doctors and uh, what end bits of medicine they end up in, some of it is to do with your own personal experience. So by the time I was, I don't know, 10 or 11, I decided I, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and I decided I wanted to be a pediatrician, actually, because I'd seen my younger sister uh, being very sick when I was uh, uh, younger and seen pediatricians helping save her life and all that sort of stuff. So I decided I wanted to be a doctor, I decided I wanted to be a pediatrician. But then when I was about 14 or 15, uh, I started to get uh, a very benign but quite frightening sleep experience if you don't know what it is. So I experienced something called sleep paralysis, uh, which is where uh, you kind of feel like you've woken up, but you can't move. Uh, you often feel like there's very scary things around you. You see things, you can feel things and hear things. And it can be a very absolutely terrifying experience. And I had no idea what was going on. So I he told myself all the time to my GP who said, yeah, I've got no idea what that is, but you're probably fine, go away. Um, and then I started reading up about it. And once you start reading up about these kind of things, you discover that there's lots about sleep, you know, so sleep. So those experiences are reflected in history and culture and things like demonic possessions coming in the night and evil spirits and alien abductions and all kinds of stuff that were quite cool when you're 14 or 15. Um, and it got me interested. So from that point, I was interested in sleep because I started reading up about it because of my own experiences and got really interested in it as an idea. And then I kind of pursued that all the way through my career. And the further through my career I got, the more determined I was. So I have to agree with you on consultant. the importance of sleep. We definitely do not get enough teaching on it. And also medical students just don't get enough sleep uh, in general. I think we're always burning the midnight oil. You um, are? And uh, I, so obviously I remember you giving a talk at the BMA Scottish conference back mm. in 2019. And it was interesting because you mentioned the book about why we sleep. And I remember reading it myself and it, it definitely changes your perspective. So if anyone's listening, I would definitely recommend you read Why We Sleep. It's by Matthew Walker. Matt Walker, yeah. Matt Walker, um, yeah. So it gives quite a nice uh, summary of the current research and understanding of where sleeps are. It's a little bit, I think the one thing about Matt Walker's book is it kind of leans a little bit into the terrifying. It's like, you know, if you don't get the perfect sleep, you're going to die. Um, almost. Um, so it, it's a little bit weighted towards trying to scare people into that. And I don't think that always works, but it does. It's got lots of really uh, good information about why sleep is so important. Um, and I think, as you say, it opens a lot of 
people's eyes for the first time to say, oh, actually, if I could be thinking about it. Burning the midnight oil is a really good example, actually. So medical students are all still um, uh, adolescents, uh, effectively, while well, the majority of you are all still adolescents. So we know that the brain doesn't really finish growing and developing until you hit kind of mid-20s. Um, and sleep is one of the things that shifts very much in adolescence. So you are all likely to have slightly skewed sleep patterns where you go to sleep late and want to wake up late. But then medical school forces you into getting up and going to lectures and everything. You then feel the pressure to carry on studying until midnight. But as you'll have read Matt Walker's book, you'll have appreciated that actually sleep is really important for learning. And if you are skimping on sleep, actually all that effort you're putting in burning the midnight oil is probably not going to be as useful as if you went to bed at 10 o'clock and actually probably would retain and understand and integrate what you're learning better if you optimize your sleep. But because we don't tell you that, you don't know to do it. So obviously not getting that much education in sleep medicine at medical school. Um, was it quite a steep learning curve? How, what was your training years like? So it's kind of, um, so certainly within pediatrics, but certainly in adults as well, sleep medicine, it does, it's beginning to exist as a subspecialty and it exists as a much more defined specialty in adults. We're a little bit further behind in pediatrics and defining it. But the majority of sleep problems tend to fall into two broad areas. They tend to either be uh, respiratory related. Uh, so problems like obstructive sleep apnea, where people don't breathe as efficiently in their sleep and that then affects the quality of sleep that they get. Or they tend to be more neurologically based. Um, and the kind of the classic example there is a sleep condition called narcolepsy, which is pretty rare, uh, but uh, which makes people fall asleep when they shouldn't, um, uh, very bad nighttime sleep, and uh, they get a lot of those hypnagogic hallucinations and sleep paralysis that I was talking about earlier. Um, so generally, when sleep services have existed, they tend to either be very respiratory or very neurological based. So because I knew I was interested in sleep, and I was also more interested in uh, respiratory rather than uh, the neurology, although to be fair, the neurology bits of sleep I'm really fascinated just the rest of neurology. I was like, oh, whatever. So I kind of went down a respiratory route um, and did general peds training, uh, but kind of focusing on respiratory. But then within respiratory, I made sure that I was getting exposure and training. Um, and that actually was in Glasgow. Um, so I was an Edinburgh medical graduate, but um, uh, I got a bit of advice from, uh, I did my house jobs in Livingston, uh, the consultant pediatrician there who said, uh, right, the most important thing you can do for your career is leave Edinburgh. Um, uh, and he actually told me to go to the States. He said, if you can't go to the States, go to Glasgow. Um, so I went to Glasgow um, and did my SHO and early registrar years in Glasgow. And in Glasgow and York Hill, as it was, uh, there was an establishing respiratory sleep service. Um, so I was very involved in that when I was a trainee and got a lot of experience there. Then did a neurology job in York Hill and there happens to be a consultant neurologist who has a particular interest in narcolepsy. So I made sure to learn uh, all that I could about that. And then every time I went to a new job, I was constantly looking for, for uh, ways to pull it in. And if you are thrown uh, and uh, persistent and bloody minded enough to tell people when they tell you that you're barking up the wrong tree uh, just to carry on, then actually there is often a way through. Uh, and by the time I got to be a senior trainee, I was in a position to be able to apply for fellowships in Sydney. So I did a couple of uh, uh, sleep fellowships in Sydney uh, and then a job in Great Ormond Street at the end of my training uh, in sleep and then sleep consultant post after that. That's fascinating going around the world with uh, sleep. Yeah, so so one thing I think is it, it's sometimes it's, it's really, and I was guilty of this. So I got very uh, settled in Glasgow. Um, uh, so having uh, been kind of, 
uh, averse to Glasgow when I was younger. So I'm from the Highlands and uh, you, you, you either tend to be an Edinburgh or Glasgow person. I was always an Edinburgh person uh, until I graduated uh, and came across and thinking, oh my God, this is going to be hell. And actually I fell in love with Glasgow. Glasgow is an amazing city to live and a great city to train. Um, and it's quite easy to get comfortable. You know, so if you've had a great medical school, uh, great medical school experience, then you get jobs done locally. And sometimes it's really easy just to keep going and just get the next job and stay where you are and never go anywhere. And actually I think a really important bit of advice for anyone uh, in terms of medical training is it is always better to diversify your training a bit um we were chatting a bit before we started about you know things that went wrong in careers so uh, i was i'm old enough that uh, i was applying for for higher training at a point when something called modernizing medical careers was coming in um and uh, i really wanted to stay in glasgow uh, and i didn't get a job um and i was gutted um, and I, could have, I really didn't want to be swept up in this modernizing medical careers thing so I thought right I'm gonna have to go to England um, so I went to England and I thought my career was over I thought it was this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me I'm having to leave Scotland I've got to go to England it's terrible um, oh, kind of thing um, but it made me look at things in a different way and actually as soon as I went to England I you know I saw people doing things in different ways and actually it pushed me to take risks that I never would have taken if I'd stayed in Glasgow if I'd stayed in Glasgow I'd have been very comfortable and I probably would have had a very different career but because I'd already been forced to move I was then much more likely to do things like apply for the job in Australia apply for the job in Great Ormond Street um, and end up where you are so take Take risks, um, but also don't don't get too comfortable. I think there's there's a lot of value in uh, spreading your wings a little bit and going a bit further afield in your training. I think it's a really good advice. Yeah, keep keep pushing, keep trying to find something new to to move on from. Yeah. So you mentioned that obviously it was respiratory and sort of neurological, the main areas of sleep. So what's uh, what are your typical cases that you usually see um, in your speciality? So that's kind of how sleep evolved, that kind of respiratory neurological thing. The problem is that isn't really how people sleep. So that one of the reasons that I uh, work where I work uh, in Everly London is that we're one of the few children's hospitals in the UK that approaches sleep as its own specialty, so not as an offshoot of, of anything else. So we see sleep as its own specialty and we take a very holistic approach. So we're just as comfortable seeing the obstructive sleep apnea as in the kids with narcolepsy. So our clinic caseload splits um, our diagnostic lab is very busy and does a lot of the respiratory uh, obstructive sleep apnea work. Our clinic work tends to split um, about probably about 25% of the work is uh, narcolepsy and similar conditions. About 25% of the work is uh, children and young people who have more common but kind of more severe end of the spectrum uh, end of sleep difficulty. So that delayed sleep phase that I was talking about uh, that adolescents pretty much all get most of you cope all right with that but there are some people whose sleep becomes so skewed by that that they're just not able to function and then they will come and see people like me and we'll try and correct them and get them back on path so that's about 25 percent of the work and the remaining 50 percent of the work is very much involved with children and young people whose sleep is affected by other conditions so the vast majority of this are children with neurodevelopmental conditions so uh, autism and adhd being the two most common um, but we see children with all sorts of complex uh, neurodevelopmental differences with genetic diagnoses with physical health problems with mental health problems where sleep is part and parcel of that and what we are trying to do is help correct and improve the sleep aspects uh, of their uh, presentations so um, it's a nice variety actually and one of the things i like about sleep as a specialty is that it cross cuts uh, across every other specialty um, so everything else is pulled into sleep um, and it means you get a really lovely uh, spectrum uh, of patients and families that come through our clinics 
Well, yes, there's a big, big variety, and obviously, um, as I know, the sleep affects nearly every system in your body. So I'm assuming you get referrals from lots of different specialities. Then, yeah, so so part of that as well is about eye opening. Um, is you know, so so really simple examples. If you have a diagnosis of epilepsy, um, and you are sleep deprived, you are much more likely to have a seizure. Um, if you are a type one diabetic and your sleep is not as good as it should be, your ability to regulate your glucose is going to be uh, less good than if your sleep is is top notch um so we we do a lot of trying to raise awareness within our own hospital and our own teams of saying look um if you've got kids who have these conditions where you're finding things a little bit difficult well why don't we have a look at their sleep and maybe we can help you help them to improve things um i actually run an entire clinic that is um, an adolescent clinic so um you know any children's hospital will look after adolescents with chronic health difficulties and because sleep problems in adolescents are so endemic and so you know pretty much everybody has them then all of them end up being sleep deprived and for most teenagers and adolescents that's okay but if you happen to be an adolescent who also has difficult to treat asthma or epilepsy or diabetes then actually optimizing sleep might just make a little bit of a difference that's worthwhile um, so we do a lot of banging the drum in that regard. Could you give us a rundown of a of an interesting case that you've had and how it presented and overall how what sort of treatments you've used or interventions? I guess um, so. The bits so I find all of it interesting. Um, the the young people I find the most satisfying to be involved with uh, are the ones who are diagnosed with narcolepsy. Um, so narcolepsy, particularly when it presents in teenagers. Um, so the the presenting history is often oh this you know sleepy teenager. They're a bit lazy. They fall asleep in the daytime. They're you know they're not going to bed all the rest. Of and they they look like a normal kind of teenage presentation, but there are often clues in the uh, the pattern of the history, uh, particularly um, that can say, actually, this is something a bit different. Um, and when we get those kids into our clinic, we can make a transformative difference to their lives. So these are kids who've often been labeled, you know, just sleepy or lazy or just not putting enough effort in. And we can make a positive diagnosis of narcolepsy. And actually we can transform their lives really, really quickly. Um, because when you get the diagnosis and you start treatment, then suddenly things start going the other way and it can make a really uh, big difference um, and that's kind of the bread and butter of the interesting side one of the lovely things about sleep is we don't know very much about sleep um, we know a lot more than we used to um, and we know a lot more than, than people think we do and again if you read Matt Walker's book you'll see just how much we do know but we're always finding new things about sleep and that's one of the things I find really fascinating um, and sleep is a funny uh, state uh, you know, so different types of sleep as we go through the night. Um, so dream sleep, for example, has been described as, you know, a, a regular period of psychosis that we all go through every night and don't realise it. Um, but it means that as the brain and body is going through these changes, you can get some really weird presentations. Um, so it was kind of the, the hypnagogic hallucination sleep paralysis that got me interested in the beginning. You know, the fact that they were interpreted as demonic possessions or alien abductions and things. You know, you know in the Middle Ages, uh, a child presenting with these kind of things would have been queaked off down to the parish minister to get exercised by the demon that they've got. Um, sleep terror is really common. Um, lots of kids under the age uh, of uh, 10 will have these, particularly uh, preschool kids, uh, where they kind of, you know, they, they look like they wake up in the middle of the night, they're standing up and they're caught, they're shouting, they're screaming, they're running around, you know, you stick your hands on them, they fight you, and the parents go, what the hell is happening to my child? And actually, when you break it all down to the physiology, it's all very understandable, but it looks really weird from the outside. And then beyond that, there are some phenomenally uh, badly named, actually, sleep things. So, you know, we've got phenomena... Um, 
do you know when you go off to sleep sometimes you get a kind of random kick you know that kind of sleep jerk that you get as your leg just kind of a bit of a, a, a oh a yeah as you obviously yeah, so yeah. that's just your senses and your motor uh, system as you go into sleep uh, kind of are just kind of shifting into different modes the sensory uh, versions of that so sometimes as they fall asleep people will hear voices or whatever but there is a kind of very extreme version of that where you kind of get this feeling of intense pressure building up in your head and then it feels like your head's exploded and you might see a bright light or hear a loud noise you, you genuinely think something awful has happened to you um, and that's called exploding head syndrome I mean, how could you not love a specialty that has a condition called exploding head syndrome? Um, and again, it's completely benign, but it feels terrifying. And then we kind of say to all these patients, yeah, it's fine. You've got a completely benign condition. It feels terrible. Nothing to worry about. It's called exploding head syndrome. And they kind of go, what? Why would you call it something like that if it's so if it's OK? But yeah, so there's lots of things like that. Weird and wonderful of sleep um, fascinates me. Um, I've never heard of exploding head syndrome. No, that's fine. It's not that common. No, I was going to say, that's but, quite an interesting one to hear. But I think... Um, Similar, what was it? Radical fringe in the lunatic genes. They've had to just change the names because you can't <laughs> want to tell a patient, "Oh, you're a radical fringe yeah. gene." Is a malformation. Uh, there are, so there's another example of that. In uh, so it's more of a respiratory sleep. There's a condition called um, congenital central hyperventilation syndrome, um, and this is a condition where. Uh, when you sleep. So normally when you sleep, there is kind of a, a background control of your breathing that keeps you breathing uh, whilst you sleep. But in people who have this condition, CCHS, um, that doesn't work. So they fall asleep and they stop breathing. Um, which is not really compatible with life. So these kids are usually picked up in uh, the neonatal period because they keep having uh, apnea as they stop breathing. Uh, and eventually somebody works out this is what's going on. We call that CCHS now, congenital central hyperventilation syndrome, but the classical name for it is Ondine's curse because in classical mythology, Ondine was a nymph who fell in love with a mortal man. Um, and she went, I want to marry him. He's amazing. I love him, whatever. And her nymph mother said, you cannot marry him. He's a human. You know, he'll betray you. This will all end badly. You're not allowed to marry him and if you did marry him you'd have to give up your magic powers to do it and she went no I'm in love I'm in love so she gives up her powers she marries the man they live happily for two or three years uh, and then he starts cheating around but when they married her wedding vow she said um, that uh, he would love her with every waking breath and she kind of used the last of her magic to, to imbue that into the wedding vow. So as soon as he started cheating around uh, he lost the ability to breathe when he was asleep and he died. Um, so Ondine's curse is this curse where, uh, you know, you, you can only breathe when you're awake. The problem with that is if you are, you know, diagnosing a baby with this condition in the neonatal unit um, and you're saying, yeah, we've worked out what's wrong with your child. It's not great, but, you know, we can treat it. And yeah, it's called Ondine's curse. And the parents just kind of look at you and go, you're telling me my child is cursed. So, yeah, what we call things really matters uh, sometimes. So I see that obviously you've mentioned like certain conditions that sound really bad, but are not not too harmful they're quite benign but i remember reading about um is it fatal familial insomnia which Ooh. is uh very which, rare which is very rare but it also was a very scary condition to read about is that something yeah, you've ever seen before I've never seen it in practice, but I saw, so, I mean, this is a phenomenally rare condition. You're, you're talking about handfuls of families uh, uh, across the world. Um, and it's a condition where um, you uh, lose the ability to sleep effectively, progressively. Um, uh, and then the longer you don't go without sleep, the more you just start to break down and there's no treatment. So you just get to a point where you cannot sleep, you cannot function and you, you die. Um, you know, it's generally, uh, genuinely a fatal insomnia. So I've never seen a clinical case, so partly because it doesn't tend to affect children. And I'm a pediatrician. It's fascinating from a physiological, pathological perspective, but it's absolutely devastating um, and thankfully very rare. 
yeah, it was, it was everything that scared me, especially when it doesn't matter how many sedatives you use, it doesn't work, which is yeah. quite fascinating that it doesn't, doesn't matter how many you use, it doesn't work. And essentially, so we, we don't officially know how long uh, you can uh, deprive somebody of sleep before they will die. Um, there are uh, legends of the experiments being done in some countries in history, but you know, clearly getting the ethics through that would be very challenging. But we know that when any organism is de deprived of sleep, actually they, they don't function very long. Um, uh, there is some evidence to suggest you may die of sleep deprivation before you die of water deprivation. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's difficult to do actually. If you were that sleep deprived, your brain will usually force you into sleep. You have to be being actively prevented from going to sleep to get to that point, uh, unless you have a condition like fatal familial insomnia. Well, let's move on to something a bit more lighthearted after that. Yeah, sorry. Deeper conversation. You are one of the founders of the Rainbow NHS Badge Project. I am. Um, and at Glasgow um, recently, some medics have set up an LGBTQIA plus society. Um, and actually, we're going to interview the presidents from that society and, you know, get them to talk about these issues and also, uh, you know, let us know why their work is important. Uh, important. So could you tell us a wee bit about how you how that came about of you starting that project? Uh, stubbornness again. Um, so the, the, the Rainbow NHS Badge Project is, um, so basically it's a, a really simple thing. It's a, a small pin badge uh, that can be worn on a lanyard or uniform, whatever. Uh, it's the pride flag uh, superimposed with the English NHS logo, logo um, which annoys me. I'll come on to that in a second. But anyway, um, and the idea is that if uh, somebody is wearing this, then it's kind of a, a quick and easy way to signal to an LGBT plus person that you are a good person to talk to. Um, so for lots of reasons, many LGBT plus people feel uh, nervous or they lack confidence in, in healthcare professionals. Many of them have had very bad experiences in the past. Uh, they feel like they uh, may meet doctors who don't understand their healthcare needs. Um, and unfortunately, there is still a lot of homophobia, biphobia, transphobia uh, in the NHS. We know about a quarter of NHS staff uh, are still... Uh, expressing these kind of views uh, openly. Um, and if you hear that, then you don't feel safe or secure. So the, NH the, the, the badge project is intended to try and counter that a little bit. Um, and there's a bit more behind it as well, but that's kind of the, the, the basic bit of it. Um, I, uh, as you say, was one of the people that developed it. I clearly am from Scotland, trained in Scotland, um, but have been uh, living and working in England for quite some time. So when I developed this, I did it uh, with the NHS logo. And then one of the frustrating things is that when you then try and do that in Scotland, um, I'm not allowed to because the NHS Scotland logo is different. And the Scottish government said, no, 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 we're not using the English logo um, for very good reasons. You know, the, the NHS in Scotland is still very much more protected uh, and part of government uh, uh, in the way that it is uh, uh, organised and where the final responsibility lies, where in England you know, things are perhaps not quite so good in, in some ways. So the Scottish government, for very good reasons, say, look, we don't want to use the English logo. Um, it's taken a bit of time, but the Scottish government uh, are now looking at a similar project, which hopefully will get off the ground in 2021. So using our experience, but designing one that is more Scotland specific. Uh, so it should hopefully be coming your way sometime in 2021. Oh, it's good to hear. Glad I remember that being discussed, being uh, that none of this Scottish I get that point. I think that the difficulty, I mean, the English NHS logo is fairly universally recognised. Um, and whilst the Scottish logo is different, I, I don't really think it threatens the identity that much. And, uh, you know, particularly for something like this, I think there is also some argument about the universality of the, you know, what you're trying to do. But it's a difficult balance. Uh, and I completely understand why the Scottish government came down on the side that they did. But uh, I'll be very happy to see uh, a version in Scotland. Uh, it's, uh, you know, so I grew up as 
a kid who was working out that I was gay in the islands and you know that was in the 80s it was challenging um uh, you know so for me it's really important actually that this kind of work has been done in Scotland and actually when you look at LGBT plus uh, rights and support Scotland is generally far better at this than the rest of or much of the rest of the UK um so things like the Thai campaign getting this kind of teaching into uh, schools uh, and the Scottish government formalizing that into uh, the Scottish curriculum uh you know things like you know so section 28 which you were far too young to, to remember but section 28 was a horrible piece of legislation that prevented uh, schools talking positively about lgbt plus uh, relationships and people um, so it actively uh, inhibited uh, positive support of, of lgbt kids uh, in the 80s and 90s uh, it was repealed in scotland uh, before it was repealed in england um so that you know there's a, a, a long history of scotland actually uh, in in latter times being a much more supportive environment uh, which uh, is nice well i'm glad we're ending on a more of a positive note i think <laughs> last last uh, thing i wanted to ask was what's been the most rewarding moment of your career um i think there have been lots to be honest um uh i think from a personal point of view um uh so it's to do with the rainbow nhs badge uh project so i grew up uh, as I said in in the 80s in Scotland which was not uh, in any way supportive environment uh, in terms of just the general social culture media you know if you, you know, the, the prevailing culture in the 80s was that if you know somebody was a gay man then they were a paedophile you know, the, 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 those two things were just conflated and if you are a kid realizing that you are gay and that is how people are talking about you that's a really terrifying environment to grow up in um, and that's just you know that's not that's just the way the world was. That wasn't any particular uh, individual or anything like that. Um, that has got better, but actually the lived experience of LGBT plus children and young people in the UK is still uh, not as good as it can be. And I think being involved in the Rainbow NHS Badge project has very much been about me trying to be the kind of person that I needed when I was a kid. Um, so the kind of person that would have been able to have been approached, to have been an ally. You know, So I had an awful experience when I was about 15, I think, where I went to my GP and uh, told them that I thought I was gay. And they basically said, and I lived in quite a small village at the time, um, and they basically said, oh, it'll be fine, you'll grow out of it. And don't worry, I won't tell your grandfather about it when we play golf this evening. And I was like, oh my God. And I kind of was absolutely terrified by that. So I what I needed at that point was somebody to listen, to be receptive, to be supportive, to, to educate, to inform, um, which I think is very much the role of a paediatrician. And being involved in this project, I think, is a small part of trying to give something back for that. But um, that's only one. I've had uh, lots of really rewarding uh, experiences. It is, by the way, it feels a lot of the time like hard graft. And I think you will all be coming into the NHS at a very, very challenging time. Um, uh, and certainly more challenging than when I was a house officer 20 years ago. Um, but it is worth it. Um, and it feels like a hard graph. So particularly when you first come out of medical school, you get that kind of ride of enthusiasm for the first little while of being a doctor. It's great. It's amazing. And then suddenly you're just in the grind and it, it gets better, I promise. Um, and by the time you get to be a consultant, you are much more able to steer your own direction and to carve out your own path. And it is a phenomenally satisfying and rewarding thing to do. Um, you, you know, you can make changes that are going to influence so particularly as a pediatrician we make changes that might influence an entire lifetime um, and we may never see the rippling consequences you know so um, there are kids uh, who I resuscitated as newborns uh, in what was uh, Rotten Row in Glasgow which is now knocked down and there's the safety pin memorial uh, in the park um, you know and those you know I was there right at that point you know you, you get to be the person that turns their you know sorts them out in that moment and it could have been anyone 
but that's the point it, it, you, it gets to be you and then th those kids go on and live entire lives it's amazing um you you'd be amazed at the ripples you know so even as medical students you know you can you you know the interaction that you might have with somebody on a ward might be the most human interaction that they're ever going to have in that day and that actually might be the thing that you know that makes a big difference to them that day you can make small differences in people's life that seem inconsequential to you but they will ripple out and, and I think that's that's the beauty of, of everything that we do is we've got the potential to really help influence change at every level and it's a brilliant uh, uh, responsibility and privilege.